Welcome to Paradigms on WBKM.org. This is episode number 60, Sunday, November 21st, 2010.
George Harrison, of course, with My Sweet Lord. Good evening, Baruch here with you. I'm the host of Paradigms. Happy to be with you again another Sunday night here at WBKM. Tonight we have an interesting show on the topic of interfaith. We're going to be hearing from three different interfaith uh, ministers, one's a rabbi, and listening to some music and learning about interfaith, which is pretty interesting. I heard about it before and learned a little bit about it, but it's interesting to find out more about what a significant movement it is and what a, an important role interfaith can play in bringing peace. So with no further ado, let's hear from our first guest, Catherine O'Connell. This is Paradigms on WBKM.org. Good morning, Baruch. It is a delight to be here. My name is Reverend Dr. Catherine O'Connell. A lot of people call me Pema, which is my Buddhist name, meaning Red Lotus. And I am delighted to be on your show today. Thank you for asking. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and yourself with us. I'm really uh, interested in what you're doing. I would love to know about the interfaith movement more, and I know you're involved in it. And I'm wondering what you can tell us about interfaith and about what brought you to interfaith. Oh, that's a wonderful question. Thank you for it. I think what brings, uh, what brought me and what brings people in general to interfaith is that their whole lives they're interested and thirsty to know about spiritual things, right? I'm that kind of a person. I was like that from day one. I remember being a little kid and two years old and I would dream something and then it would happen, you know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I remember being going through the 60s and uh, being uh, spending time with spiritual masters from all over the world. That's that's always driven me. I've always been very interested in what the what the mystical truth is, what, what goes beyond the boundaries and the love uh, and the heart that we all share. Tell us more about interfaith itself, because I think a lot of folks don't really know what it means. Yes, the interfaith movement. Uh, probably really started, well, it's been going on for centuries, uh, forever. There have been people who have been interested in learning about all different spiritual paths and and sharing the mystical oneness, you know, and emphasizing the the oneness and the heart rather than all the rules, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, in the United States in 1899, you had the Chicago, that big Chicago Expo, and that was really the first big interfaith gathering. And at the time, Swami Vivekananda was invited to speak. And that was really amazing because his picture was in the newspapers. And it's the first time a lot of people in the United States or Canada had seen a guy with a turban, right? Wow. <laughs> and he was a very good-looking guy, if you remember. You yes, know? yes. <laughs> it made quite an impression. If you remember, during that period of time, the theosophical movement was getting going. And there was a really renewed interest in mysticism, a renewed interest in astrology, a renewed inst- in, uh, and a renewed thirst for knowledge from the East. And so people from, from the West, at first England, were very, very interested in beginning to learn Sanskrit and then communicating with uh, India, with Nepal, with Tibet, and beginning to translate some of those sacred documents into English, making them available for the first time. 
that thirst from that 1899 gathering really grew in, grew a thirst that was already there and fed a thirst that was already there. And you had people very interested in learning and communicating. And so throughout the early 1900s, you had occasional gatherings. Then in the 1960s and 70s, there was a rabbi who recently passed on, Rabbi Gelberman in New York City. Wonderful man, Polish Holocaust survivor, a traditional Hasidic rabbi. Very magnetic person, though, and he attracted people from all kinds of religions. People came to him, and yet, really, strictly going by the book, he wasn't really supposed to counsel people outside his religion, right? Right. So, he headed up a traditional Hasidic uh, synagogue and so on. So, he was in a struggle. On the one hand, he wanted to work with people with all faiths. On the other hand, he had these rules. So, he took it into prayer. We still have that expression, taken into prayer. And he was given a special dream. And that dream, he was walking around the world with all the spiritual masters from all centuries. And they were sharing uh, spirit with everyone. So what he did as a result of that dream is he kept his traditional synagogue. And in addition, he started this uh, saying, never instead of always in addition to because he didn't have to choose or change or leave anything. In addition to, he started the first interface seminary. And now there are many interface seminaries all around the world. East-West Interface Seminary, that I'm the chancellor of, is the only one that is fully online. So I literally work on a one-on-one basis with people from all over the world on the Internet. That's very exciting. It is. It's fun. It's a tutorial. As you know from looking at my bio, I have a, I'm a college professor by background. I was a consultant to a president before I was 30. Uh, I'm an author and so forth. And so I have fun really working one-on-one with people with Skype, like we're talking on Skype now, and email and the Internet. And so I have students and graduates from all over the world. But there are interfaith ministers all over doing all kinds of things, from working for the UN to doing interfaith weddings, you name it. Everywhere, thousands of them all over the world. We have interfaith seminaries all over the place. It's mushrooming. It's a wonderful thing. Now, we're seeing a lot of focus on various orthodoxies right now in the world. We're seeing uh, what seems to be, at least, a a real rise in fundamentalism across many different religious uh, traditions. And that seems sort of like the antithesis of interfaith. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how might someone who's engaged in a more fundamentalist or orthodox tradition relate to interfaith uh, that would benefit them? Wonderful. Well, I think the story of Rabbi Gelberm is very inspiring that way, isn't it? As a Hasidic rabbi, he found a way to, uh, to bridge that gap. Interfaith ministers are bridges, you know, of communication. Never instead of, always in addition to. So you don't have to give up anything. You just develop bridges of communication to others. You keep that which is precious to you. You know, as a college professor and a writer, I bet you, you love words. I do. Yes. The meaning of words. Fundamental comes from the word fundus. You know, I used to be a midwife, too. In addition to be a psychologist, I'm also an RN. I've done, done some labor and delivery in my life, right? Wow. Fundus. What is a fundus? It's the core of the uterus. So the uh, fundamental comes from fundus, the core. What is the core of all religions? In my opinion, it's love. And if your religion is not about love, take another look. Wise, wise advice. Catherine O'Connell, or Pema, as I've come to know her. That was the first part of our interview. We'll hear more from her just after this next bit of music. Just give you time to think about what she's saying. 
Here's some music from a local band called PMP, What God Loves. Living life with God, you can't go wrong There are so many troubles in the world today Sometimes I just stop and I have to say But God loves So many times I sit and wonder why There's so much trouble in this world Just take the time and look around What you see might make you cry This whole world's in trouble What God loves is the truth Follow him to get the juice He has a perfect plan for you and I Sometimes when I pray to him I have to cry What we need is some peace, love and harmony Protect our children, stop the killing in the street You can't hide yourself behind the stone When the time of judgment Judgment Day comes around Everyone who's evil is going down You have to live your life according to His will Living right for God is the real deal He'll supply your every need Give your life to Him and He'll take the lead What God loves is the truth Serve Him and you'll get the boost What God loves is the truth right now I'm gonna tell you what God loves Alright, here's the second part of my conversation with Reverend Catherine O'Connell on the topic of interfaith on paradigms. East-West Interfaith Seminary, it's a very exciting thing. We communicate from people all over. The Parliament of World Religions is an international gathering that meets once every five years. Uh, I was very involved in the uh, 1999 one in South Africa. There were 8,000 people there, Baruch. Wow. Uh, all traditions, very some very, very traditional, you know, fundamental, whatever, uh, orthodox people there in all religions, Zoroastrian, uh, Islamic, uh, Jewish, uh, Shinto, boy, you name it. 
it's a it was a great costume fest too. People had their wonderful traditional costumes and the food. Uh, it's a lot of fun when we're communicating through love, and we're talking about the mystical experience. It's felt the same way by everyone. It's not uh, it's not a dogma. It's about heart, isn't it? So you're you're talking about the difference between doctrine and direct experience. Exactly. Oh, so well put. Thank you. Now, I know that for some people, doctrine takes precedence over direct experience, and in some religions, in fact, direct experience is not accepted. One is expected to go through an intercessor, but what you're talking about sounds very different. Well, it, again, that, mean, that wonderful meaning of the word fundamental and fundus, if we go back to the core at the beginning, the seed, of course, seminary means seed, you know. If we go back to the seed of all religions, we go back usually to, we go back to love and we go back to shared experience. For instance, a lot of people raised in the West have no idea about the mystical traditions behind their Jewish faith or their Christian faith. But if you go back in history, they're there, aren't they? Absolutely. They're, they are, as you say, they're the fundus. They're the core of it. Yes. Wow. What's not to like? <laughs> <laughs> I would love for be able to for people to be able to get in touch with us. May I share that information? Absolutely. Our website is www.interfaithseminaries.net. I n t e r f a i t h s e m i n a r i e s. Interfaithseminaries.net. And my email is raven like the bird raven forty eight forty eight at yahoo.com. Raven forty eight forty eight at yahoo.com. As you know. On the East-West Interfaith Seminary's website, we have all the information, the curriculum is there, even an application. But did you know that applications are by invitation only? Because we want it to be right for that person. We're not looking for people. They find us because they're interested in the spirit of interfaith and that love. I love the fact that you're not on a conversion mission. Me too. You know, there's a principle, you see it in the 12 steps, you know, there's 12 traditions too, right? Yes. Tradition 11 is attraction, not promotion. That which is truly spiritual attracts, just like a bead of honey, doesn't it? So someone who's listening to this who is feeling like, oh, that speaks to me, they could go to your website. They might also be able to find uh, local interfaith ministers or people involved in a local interfaith movement. How would people find... Uh, people in their own location who are involved with interfaith? Well, start doing some Google searches because, you know, we've got interfaith ministers all over the world. So they will find interfaith activities and interfaith ministers. If they have trouble, feel free to email me. Also, take a look at the links page. There's wonderful links to interfaith organizations on our website, isn't there? We have many, many friends, as you know. We have many thousands and thousands of honorary interfaith ministers. The Dalai Lama is one. Uh, Dahani Uwahu is one. She's in Vermont, Sunray yes, Meditation is. Society. Yes. Yeah. She's a good friend of ours. She's wonderful. Dahani has been doing powerful work in Lincoln, Vermont for decades now. Yes, she has. And that's a special piece of land that she's on to the native people of New England, including my tribe, the Mi'kmaq or Mi'kmaq. At any rate, um, so we're very, very supportive, as you know, of ind indigenous people all over. As a matter of fact, whenever we do an interface ceremony, we start by opening, have some people from the indigenous tribe of that area to open it. 
whether it's America, if it's, uh, you know, Native America or if it's Africa, South Africa, we did the same thing in Africa, everywhere. It's always the indigenous people of that particular land that open ceremonies. It's very interesting. In, in the tradition that I am involved with, when we create sacred space, one of the things we always do is honor the ancestors of the land we are and, and who was there first. Not just yes. the human ancestors either. Yes, yes. Well, you clearly have so much love and the interfaith spirit. Uh, it is just an honor to know you and to, to be invited by you to uh, interview. As you know, we don't advertise. So people find us. I, I said to you, oh, how did you find, how did you find me? You know, you said, and you said, oh, I Googled your website. People just find us. Attraction, not promotion. We have people from every tradition under the sun, plenty of Wiccans, plenty from indigenous traditions, uh, uh, Islamic, Jewish, Christian, you name it, Zoroastrian, Shinto, Buddhist, everybody. That's what's so fun about it. Thank you so much for your time and your, your sharing and, and for being so welcoming to me. Oh, bless you. Uh, uh, Baruch is such a sacred name. Bless you, Baruch. So that was our first guest. We have two more guests uh, we're going to hear from, but first let's listen to some more music. And remember that you can uh, always check out the archives of previous episodes of Paradigms at our website, paradigms.bz. We're also going to have links on the website to all of the guests and also to the United Nations Interfaith Week, which you'll hear about in a little while. Here's a fun song from Dave Carter and Tracy Grammer. On a sleepy, endless ocean, when the world lay in a dream, there was rhythm in the splash and roll, but not a voice to sing. So the moon fell on the breakers, and the morning warmed the waves, till a single sail did jump and hum for joy, as though to say, This is my home. This is my only home This is the only sacred ground that I've ever known and Should I stray in the dark night alone Rock me goddess in the gentle arms of Eden Then the day shone bright and rounder Till the one turned into two And the two into ten thousand things And old things into new and on some virgin beachhead one lonesome critter crawled And he looked about and shouted out in his most astonished drawl This is my home, this is my only home This is the only sacred ground that I've ever known Should I stray in the dark night alone Rock me goddess in the gentle arms of Eden was carpet green and the wary children of the woods went dancing in between and the people sang rejoicing when the fields were glad with grain this song a celebration from their cities on the plain this is my home this is my only home this is the only sacred ground that i've ever known should i stray 
In the dark night, bone rock me, goddess in the gentle arms of Eden. Now there's smoke across the harbor, and there's factories on the shore, and the world is ill with greed and will, an enterprise award. But I will lay my burdens in the cradle of your grace, and the shining beaches of your love, and the sea of your embrace. This is my home. This is my only home. This is the only sacred ground that I've ever known. Should I stray? In the dark night, lone rocky goddess in the gentle arms of Eden. Rocky goddess in the gentle arms of Eden. All right, let's hear from our next guest, Rabbi Roger Ross on Paradigms. Well, hi, I'm, I'm Rabbi Roger Ross, and I am the director of the new seminary, the oldest interfaith seminary in the world along with my wife, who is the co-director, Reverend Deborah Steen-Ross. And we are a seminary that teaches people the traditions, customs, and um, understanding of most of the major faiths in the world, and also teaches people how to minister to other people throughout their stages of their lives. What brought you to interfaith? Actually, my Judaism brought me to interfaith. As a rabbi, as a Jew... Uh, I grew up learning the very sacred words, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. And the last two words, Adonai Echad, mean there is but one God. And so to my understanding, if there was only one God, there were only children of one God, which meant that everybody was a child of that God, and therefore we were all brothers and sisters. So how in the name of whatever you call God... Could there be us and them? And that really began when I was eight years old and continued through my entire life until I got to be an adult and until I found the founder of this whole movement who just recently passed away, Rabbi Joseph Gelberman, when I learned that there really is a movement to follow through on the fact that we are all one and we simply dress ourselves differently and speak language differently, but it's all about the same thing. That's what brought me to it. That's a beautiful story. I, I, I really uh, just want to say I really appreciate the way you said that. Thank you. How then do you deal with encountering the exclusivity that so many religions seem to practice? How, how do you face that? Well, there are several different levels of that. I think that on most of the levels of, um, of faiths that might practice forms of exclusivity, what I look for is the common ground where we can begin a discussion that maybe opens up people to a little bit more of acceptance. If I come in contact with people whose views are very extreme in their position and simply have no room to change at all or to see things differently, I use a technique that, was, um, that I learned from Father Thomas Keating, who is a very wonderful, contemplative Roman Catholic monk. I asked him that very same question, and he said, I live by a rule of three L's, the letter L. He said, the first L is that I listen because that's polite. The second L is that I love him because every scripture demands that of us. The third L is that then I leave. <laughs> I like it. We hold, we, hold, we hold dialogue 
until there is no dialogue left. When it becomes a monologue that's simply pointed in only one direction and leaves no room for another, it's time to fold up our tent and move on to find the next person who may have a little bit more acceptance and a little bit more willingness at least to share ideas, if not change anything. I, I really uh, I like that because it, it says, I'm here, I'm willing to listen, but I'm not interested in being abused. Exactly. And it's not, you know, I don't, that may be the inner thought process. It's not as harsh as that as it comes out. I am always willing to listen. I am always willing to learn. All I ask from the other person is that they afford me the same consideration. When they don't, when it's not possible for them to do it, uh, I make the statements that I can about loving and inclusiveness, and then I leave because there's nothing left to talk about. You know, it's people who respond to things with yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. My response, because of what I've learned from my teachers, is yes and. My teacher developed a motto for the new seminary. It's a very simple one. Never instead of, always in addition to. So I never have in my heart that anybody else is wrong about how they approach their uh, vision of faith. And I'm fully accepting of that. And when I hear everything the person has to say, the only comment I might make if I feel that it needs to go further is, I understand everything you say, and you're perfectly right and clear in what you're speaking about. In addition to that, I have something else that I see around this that I'd like to share with you. If they're open to hearing me, it's a wonderful dialogue. If they're not opening to hearing from me, the dialogue is over, the conversation is over, it's time to shake hands and still love one another and leave. It would be so easy to focus on those kinds of moments, and I don't want to stay there. I, I really appreciate the way you handle it. Um, do you have an example of uh, an experience you've had with someone where the listening and the loving led to something transformative? Very much so. Very much so. Without naming names or even faith, was approached by somebody who wanted to tell me why, well, I guess I have to say what the other faith was about. It was, it was, a, it was about Islam. And this person wanted to tell me why I was espousing the wrong interpretations of my very own scriptures, which the Jewish scriptures don't agree with the Quran on several points. The things about Abraham, the things about Ishmael, the things about who is really the progenitor of the race of, of the people who are Jew, uh, Jews, the Jew, of Judaism itself. And we were having a conversation, and this person was very strident, and very strident, and very strident, and very strident, and what I did was listen. And when the person finished, and I could see him almost in a, uh, metaphorically in a fighting stance, you know, ready for me to refute everything that he said, I said to him, you're absolutely correct. If I were to look at it from your perspective, that's exactly what I would see. And he was dumbfounded. He didn't know what to say next. And I said, and you're not wrong. The difference is that you and I see it differently. And growing up, we've experienced it differently. And so in my heart, where that lesson resides, I see that 
Isaac was the natural continuation of Abraham's line, and you see that it was Ishmael. And you're not wrong. And the truth is, what we see today, that the people of each of those sons is as many as the grains of sand on the beach or the stars in the sky. So we're both correct about this. And if we can deal with that, we can go on and talk about everything that looks different in our religions, but really is the same. That person has since become a very, very close friend of mine. And we have these discussions, and I go to his groups that he knows need a little bit more open-mindedness, and I bring him to teach to my students his perspective of Islam so people will understand it. And through that, I've learned that there are many different groups within Islam, and one of my closest friends is a Sufi, who's a mystical, traditional, loving student of Islam who has nothing to do with the militant aspects of it. And you may know his name. It's Imam Faisal Ralph, the person who wants to bring the Cordoba Institute to the building downtown near Ground Zero to put in an area for worship for Islam. Yes. And he is a beautiful, loving individual who speaks nothing but peace and inclusiveness. And so, yes, it was, it was through the person that I met before him that allowed me to understand where people were coming from in Islam because the history books only tell you the facts. They don't tell you what it feels like. And so for me to get that person's feelings and to look that person right in the eye and say, you're absolutely right. And in addition, there's some things that I've learned my way, and I think they're right also. So how do we learn to live together with both of us being right? And that's how we began our dialogue, and we turned out to be the best of friends. Rabbi Roger Ross, what he has to say about communication is pretty important. I really enjoyed hearing what he had to say, and I'm happy to bring that message out. Let's get into some music. This one's called Faith. Fall 
for those who mourn. God is in the roses and the thorns. The sun is on the Felt so much like home We're falling like the velvet petals We're bleeding and we're torn But God is in the roses And the in the Roses. That's Roseanne Cash from her amazing album, Black Cadillac. came out about five years ago. And before that, we had Movement 9, Faith, from a CD called The Prayer Cycle. The composer is Jonathan Elias. Check that one out. Well, let's listen to the second part of my conversation with Roger Ross. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you felt your own, your own frustration or anger or sense of, of being opposed or feeling oppositional? I guess what I'm asking you is, how do you mitigate your own responses that might not support 
this open dialogue? Because we all have them. We all have them. We're, we're, we're born with them, we're bred with them, and we're trained to have them. That's the unfortunate thing about uh, living life as a human being. We are, we are most of us, uh, sensitized towards one point of view when we're very young. And it's very hard to change that. That's basically where extremists come from. They're taught from birth a certain thing. So by the time they could possibly think for themselves, they no longer are able to. They've been indoctrinated a certain way. And that's in all faiths. And so we all have a tendency to do that. And the only thing that we can do is to pay attention. And paying attention means that when I'm in conversation with somebody and they say something that up comes a feeling that I really want to jump in and oppose that thought, my teaching has taught me to stop and say, what is it in me that is reacting to this? Because it's not the other person, that's their truth. So what is it in me that is feeling such a negative feeling that I want to fight about it? And so I take the time to think about it. And even if I don't find the answer, I, hmm, what's the word? To be glib, it's I fake it till I make it. I will speak dispassionately and lovingly about my feelings and about what I hear and about what I understand, knowing that I have to go do my own inner work to clear up whatever was coming up that made me uncomfortable. Well, it's all the inner work that comes from a very simple statement that you will find repeated in all faiths. It says, love thy neighbor as thyself. And where is the power in that statement? You've got to love yourself first. can't love anybody if you don't love yourself. So that's what that means. If you're in conversation with somebody or you're in whatever a, a disputation with somebody and stuff is coming up in you that you want to throw at them with anger and with power and whatever, and it means there's something in you around that you don't love in yourself. And there is an old proverb that says that which you dislike most in the other person is that which you dislike most in yourself, whether you know it or not. A lot of people are familiar with, with, with what you're saying. That's, that's the golden rule. Um, but I can imagine someone saying, why should I bother doing that inner work? Well, yeah, because you end up being a healthier person. Because if you don't do the inner work, then the same thing that, that piques your anger and your frustration is going to reappear time and time again because you haven't worked through it and let it go. And so it's as if you're taking small sips of poison every time and not taking an antidote. Eventually it will kill you. And so hate and anger and all those other things that come up when you're in distress with somebody else's conversation, if you don't find a way to find an antidote for it, not for them, but for myself, when you get very upset and very angry, you have physical reactions. Your stomach knots, your stomach boils, your heart pounds, you start to sweat, your teeth grit. Sometimes you have TMJ because of that. All of those things are a type of poison that we're doing to ourselves. And so if we can find a way to find a, a release mechanism to say, okay, that's what's happening. So I have to set that aside because I personally have to go work on it so it doesn't set off those alarm bells in my body so that I can live with those thoughts in peace. Because until we do that, we're going to suffer. You know, it's all a manifestation of that terrible word, hate. That's what comes up. And my teacher always taught that hating someone is like taking poison and waiting for them to die. Yeah, it's about the ugliest word I know. Absolutely. And the only way that we can 
restructure. Because hate is not something you want to just destroy. Hate is an energy source. And so we want to restructure that into energy that we can use for good. And the only way we can do that is to learn to modify it and learn to handle it and learn to redirect it until it's positive energy, not a negative energy. And that's what I'm talking about. Taking that time to find a different way to look at what's coming up in our own hearts so that we can then re-relate to the person that allowed that space to open up that caused us to feel that way. We should actually thank the person for giving us the impetus to learn something new that would make us healthier. At this time in the world, what you're saying seems absolutely critical to me. Uh, Oh, it is. It absolutely is. It may be that we have faced this degree of polarization in the world before, but never with this much knowledge of each other. I think it's also never with this much instant communication. Exactly. That's what I mean. And so now it's not simply a matter of of an isolated conflict, all conflicts seem to become globalized very quickly. Mm -hmm. Because people are being trained in their homes and in their schools to recognize the enemy. This country, my country, the country that I really love, is living in a state that was created over the last 30 years of critical fear of the other. We are a perfect example of xenophobia. We are afraid of everybody else who doesn't think, eat, look, smell, act exactly the way that we do. And everybody's an enemy out to hurt us. And by acting in that way, we've promoted the creation of people on the other side who say, well, look at them. They're out to hate us because they're different. They don't speak the same way. They don't smell the same way. And they want to hurt us. And so we're in a constant state of conflict as opposed to saying, whoever that person is, that person is my brother. And if I will lay down my life for my brother, it doesn't mean just my brother if he is Jewish, or just my brother if he is Muslim, or just my brother if he is American, or just my brother if he is Afghanistani. It is about loving our brothers, whoever our brothers and sisters may be anywhere in the world under any circumstances, totally and completely. There are people trying to make peace between Israelis and Arabs, trying to make peace between um, Muslims and Russian separatists, trying to make peace in Kosovo, trying to make peace in Ireland between Protestants and Catholics, on the basis of we are really the same people. And people are using religion to create conflict when it's not about religion. The conflict between Protestants and Catholics in Ireland is not about religion, It's about the government of England wanting to hold on to a piece of Ireland. Not about religion, it never was. It's about the people from the Republic of Ireland wanting to have their whole country theirs. Not about the religion. It's about who has the country. Uh, What's going on in the Middle East has never been about religion. People are using it as an excuse. But it's about oil and other resources and ways of making money and ways of ownership that the greedy people in this world want to keep festering so they can keep making money. It is up to those of us who seek peace to avoid even talking about anti-war, because if you're anti-anything, you're at war. We need to be actively seeking peace, and to do that, you have to be able to sit down with the person who is completely different from you and find a way 
to make a ground where you can meet in love and in peace. Thank you very much for your time and, and what you've said. You're very welcome. Rabbi Roger Ross from New York City. Let's get into some more music. This one's from Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life. You're listening to Paradigms on WBKM.org. And if yours you cannot find You should talk it over to him He'll give you peace of mind When you feel your life's too hard Just go have a talk with God Many of us feel we walk along without a friend
called Who is the Goddess, and it's from a CD called Witches Brew, Songs and Chants from the Reclaiming Cauldron. And before that, Stevie Wonder, Have a Talk with God. I thought those two went well together, you know, especially in light of what our guests are saying, which is, it's all the same thing, even if it looks different, it seems different when we talk about religion. So let's listen to the uh, first part of our conversation with our last guest, this is Tim Miner. 
You're listening to Paradigms on WBKM.org. Hello, I'm uh, Reverend Tim Miner. I um, am a graduate of an interfaith seminary as well as a traditional faith path seminary, and I'm executive director of the Council of Interfaith Congregations of the United States, an emerging organization of other interfaith bodies, communities, local congregations coming together doing co-worship, doing education, doing community service, uh, doing community building, all based on an interfaith model. Wow, it sounds huge. Well, you're very kind to say huge, but uh, it's an emerging thing that uh, actually uh, interfaith seminaries have existed for 30 years in the United States since uh, 1989 uh, in New York City when the very first interfaith seminary was created. And since that time, about 2,700 interfaith ministers have been ordained towards the interfaith path um, or interfaith service. And what that has been has actually been an evolving thing. Most of those individuals have gone on. Many have gone back to traditional seminaries and uh, taken ordination into a traditional faith path and tend to express themselves in that one path. But in the last few years, many of us have seen the need to transform beyond any one individual path and actually begin to live interfaith as a spiritual expression. And that's what's happening now in that next evolution of where interfaith is uh, going in the United States. Certainly, it's not the only definition of interfaith, and there are many, many, many definitions of interfaith depending on who you talk to. In many uh, religious traditions, there's a basic belief that our tradition's the right one. We're, we've got the real story. And interfaith is this coming together of different religious paths. How is that aspect of so many belief systems reconciled with interfaith? That reconciliation is part of the evolution of the, of the uh, title of interfaith. What began as interfaith as a dialogue between religions, I learn about you, you learn about me, we keep our boundaries up and our definitions of who we are and our identities of who we are up. Uh, That was the first uh, real use of that term interfaith, and that's what would happen back when these seminaries were the seminary was first uh, created, and by the way, there are at least a dozen seminaries now around the United States and around the world in different countries, but there has been an ongoing evolution besides interfaith as a dialogue, which is still what the majority of interfaith organizations are about, is bringing people together from different faith paths, having them work together, talk together, do a common activity together, sometimes even do co-worship together, but always maintaining the label of you are of this tradition, you are of that tradition, and you're, you're another person who is of a different tradition. There are elements of commonality beginning to emerge where we begin to see really common threads, and one of the very easiest ways to do that is with the idea of like the golden rule. Uh, There's a very strong emphasis on exploring the golden rule and how all the world's faith traditions have some statement, some 
part of their process, some part of who they are, their own spiritual identity that really does make the golden rule almost universal. I'm curious, in your work as a minister, in ministering to people, have uh, do you have a particular experience that comes to mind where there was an aha moment with somebody about this finding commonality? I think I can honestly say that there have been many small aha moments where I can, someone can quote from their scripture a certain belief and through rigorous study I've been able to give a comparable quote from what appeared to be a totally different faith system that says something very similar to it. And when we begin to realize that, that there are these common threads people do begin to question just how different they are. And we begin to, as 100 years ago Adler wrote about creed and deed, we begin to start to realize, well, maybe creed isn't as important as deed, and deed trumps creed, and that becomes more and more important to how we relate as human beings. And I've had several moments like that where people have, began to realize that there are more common elements to the creed that they thought separated them, when in fact that tied them together. Actions speak louder than words. That's very, very true, and I think it makes for a better world when we're when our actions and our hands are in sync with what we believe and, and what our hearts know to be true. Tim Miner will hear the second part of that conversation after this music. Here's Sinead O'Connor.
That one, unfortunately, I can't even tell you the name of it because it's written in Hebrew. But it comes from a CD that was given to me when I was visiting Israel. Of uh, It's a group of women singing together, and it's just called Women's Circle Songs. And when I was in Israel, I got to meet one of the women who was part of that group. Her name was Nona, and she is an amazing artist and sculptor and singer and a woman of great depth. And we heard Sinead O'Connor before that, Guide Me, God. Let's hear the last part of my conversation with Tim Miner, and then we'll come back and close out the show for tonight. The issue of war. War is obviously a huge problem. 
in our world that people are waging war still and a number of wars that are happening now have uh, religion as a significant part of the equation and I'm wondering how uh, the interfaith community responds to to those issues and that's those are important questions you know the United Nations on October 20th of this year just passed a resolution that creates World Interfaith Harmony Week for the first week of February every year and the language for the first time is very spiritually inclusive it's to bring people together of different faith paths to talk and it even says people of no faith need to join in the dialogue as well. And so we're starting to see government structures. In this case, this was the royal family of Jordan that put forward this motion that passed by unanimous consent of the General Assembly of the United Nations. The process of war won't be solved by institutions doing interfaith work. It will only be solved by individuals coming together and having their own aha moments, much like the racial issues that have been part of the United States evolution process. It took education and contact and joint working together for common solutions for problems that existed for uh, every race and every creed and and um, it's going to take that same kind of process working between people of different faiths having pulled together to live together that will eventually stop religion being the focal point for conflict mm -hmm. and so that's why the interfaith movement is very very heavy into education right now and trying to educate people about different faiths and to remove the fear element there. Fear as an instrument of creating political control or, or creating uh, sustaining power bases for political processes can't work in the future. We really do have to have a well-educated world population. Well, it sounds like the work you're doing is part of that. Well, thank you. It is in some small way one of the immediate responses that has happened as a result of this World Interfaith Harmony Week is a call to create a populist movement that during that first week of February, and especially during the Thursday of that first seven days, wherever it falls, individuals, congregations, institutions, organizations, come together for interfaith prayer breakfasts to just share a meal. It doesn't have to be breakfast. Share a meal during the day. Share prayers, chants, meditations of the different faith paths of the people who are there on a common world and national theme to just bring people together in spiritual expression of different faith paths. And those are called World Interfaith Harmony Breakfasts. And so there is an opportunity for individuals to get involved, to open their homes for a meal, to share it with some people of different faith paths in a small private affair or in a hosted public event, 
to just begin to come together during that first week of February and begin to create the first true world interfaith holiday that all people can come together and learn in, in conversation and in dialogue by sharing a meal and by sharing spiritual practices with each other. It sounds like a great thing, and this will be the first one, but it will be an annual event. Is that correct? That's correct. This United Nations resolution gives us the opportunity to make this an annual event on the first week of February every year. And while it's the first one, as I said, uh, is fairly soon, if we can even have small events in 2011 and look to having small and bigger events in 2012 and beyond and continue to, to grow this opportunity to, to really make a, a, a focused time for learning about and being in relationship with people of different faiths. Well, it sounds excellent. And uh, if it grows a little bit every year, there you have it. Yes. Yes, very true. Well, Tim, thank you so much for talking with me and, and sharing your perspectives and this information and for opening up more of my understanding of interfaith. Really appreciate your time and, and what you had to say. Well, thank you so very much for asking the question, and and I wish uh, many blessings uh, on you and your, your own ministry and your getting this message out, and uh, I wish you very, very well. Thank you so very much for asking the question. Reverend Tim Minor. I was really interested in especially the question about war, and I was really happy to hear about the United Nations resolution, and I think I'll participate in something uh, during that interfaith week in February, and maybe some of you will too. I'd love to hear about it. Well, thus goes another evening on Paradigms. Really happy to be here with you, and I uh, hope this has been interesting to you and inspiring to you. I've always been someone who was curious about mystery and, and spirituality and wondered what's so. And, and now I, I don't really feel like I need answers to what's so, but I'm very happy to know that more and more people are finding common ground. That's something I think we can all do. All right. Have a great week. See you next time on Paradigms on WBKM.org. We're going to go out with an amazing piece of music by Buffy St. Marie.
Many hurt men wondered, many struck men bled. Magic never faltered, magic always led. Many stones were rolled, but God would not lie down. Many wild men lied, many fat men listened. Though they offered stones, magic still was fed. Though they locked their coffers, God was always served. Magic is afoot, God rules. Alive is afoot, alive is in command. Many weak men hungered, many strong men thrived. Though they boasted solitude, God was at their side. Nor the dreamer in his cell, nor the captain on the hill. Magic is alive. Though his death was pardoned, round and round the world, the heart would not believe. Though laws were carved in marble, they could not shelter men. Though altars built in parliaments, they could not order men. Police arrested magic, and magic went with them. For magic loves the hungry. But magic would not tarry. It moves from arm to arm. It would not stay with them. Magic is afoot. It cannot come to harm. It rests in an empty palm. It spawns in an empty mind. But magic is no instrument. Magic is the end. Many men drove magic, but magic stayed behind. Many strong men lied. They only passed through magic and out the other side. Many weak men lied. They came to God in secret, and though they left him nourished, they would not tell who healed. Though mountains danced before them, they said that God was dead. Though his shrouds were hoisted, the naked God did live. This I mean to whisper to my mind. This I mean to laugh with in my mind. This I mean my mind to serve till service is but magic moving through the world and mind itself is magic coursing through the flesh and flesh itself is magic dancing on a clock and time itself the magic length of God. been listening to Paradigms on WBKM.org.